You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. 500 years ago, a German monk named Martin Luther started a protest that exploded into a worldwide movement. At that time, Europe lived in the shadow of the Roman Catholic Church, and that was more like an empire than a church. It crowned and cast down kings and used its dominance to keep people in the darkness of superstition. That sounds pretty unfamiliar, but in some ways, Luther's day was very much like our own. Just like today, everyone had an opinion about the Bible, even though almost no one actually read it. Like so many of us, they were trusting the thought leaders and tastemakers of their own day to tell them what was in the Bible and whether or not to believe it. Luther was one of the very few people actually reading the Bible, and what he found was earth-shattering. Even though he was a monk, Luther hated the God of the Bible. But when he studied it, the world around him began to make sense. God made sense. The significance of Jesus became clear to him. He discovered the answer to his deepest questions. How could evil be overcome? Specifically, how could his own evil, his own sin, be dealt with? Luther discovered that he couldn't do anything to fix this problem himself. He had to rely on the finished work of Christ alone. Luther had discovered a central truth. It changed his life, and it changed the world. Protestant Reformation was about two things. It was about who can say what's true, and it was about how to reconcile who we are with who God is. It recognized that God's Word is the ultimate authority in this world, and that the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ are the only answer for evil and the only basis on which sinners can stand before a holy God. Protestant Reformation is a story of transformation, a transformation from hate to love, from slavery to freedom, and from blind faith to a glorious discovery of the truth in Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, Cypress family. Uh, my name is John White. I'm the high school youth pastor. Um, I'm going to be singing my sermon today. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is not a Prairie Home Companion. I'm sorry. Um, but... Yeah, um, so welcome. My name is John White, like I said. Um, I love this video. This video is what we used up in high school to introduce our students to the Reformation and the Sola series. And I'm not sure if you uh, parents are aware or you um, church members are aware, but we try to... Uh, hey, Blythe. Hey, June. So, hey. <laughs> um, we try to... We cover what you guys are covering upstairs, the same that uh, Pastor Mike and the other pastors are teaching downstairs. Um, and we are really strategic in family ministries about doing that because we want you to be able to talk with your kids after church on Sunday. And so I would encourage you um, to share with your students what you're learning and then ask them for insight as opposed to telling them what you... You know, like, ask them for insight from their from their teenage minds because they're thinking about it um, in different ways than you are, and you as a family can grow uh, together. And so we really liked uh, kicking off the series with them. And praise God, last week, um, uh, at the end of our time, a, a student put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ um, alone. So we were talking about that. So really, it was awesome. It was awesome. 
Um, also, too, I want to give a quick shout-out um, to the, soft, uh, to the uh, boys' varsity Cypress High School football team. They, uh, a lot of the sophomore guys in my small group play on the varsity team, and the first round of pr- playoffs, they won by a little bit, 62-27. to 27. So it was a commanding crush, which was awesome. So uh, they have another opponent this, uh, this Friday, so I'm looking forward to them. But, um, yeah, if you're visiting with us um, for the first time, I want to say welcome. On behalf of Cypress Church, we hope that you feel welcome. We hope that you feel a part of the family of God as you're worshiping with us today. And um, you might be thinking, why why sola? Why all this Latin? I promise this is the last part of the service that will be in Latin, because um, I don't know much of it. I didn't take it in high school. But um, we're going through the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and we're kind of looking at our own roots, our own evangelical roots, um, something that started 500 years ago, by this really spiritually sensitive and angry monk named Martin Luther. And there was reasons for that. But it's interesting how something that sparked off 500 years ago has implications for why we believe the way we do and why we worship the way we do here in Cypress, California at Cypress Church in the year 2017. Like that video talked about, Martin Luther, the more that he was in the Bible, he started seeing things that he had never seen before. And so we've been looking at the different solas over the past few weeks. We've looked at how there's nothing that humanity could do. There's nothing that we could do to dig ourselves out of the hole of sin. And the more that we dig in that hole of sin to try to get ourselves out, the more and deeper and messier and broken we become. And we've looked at how only by being saved by God's amazing grace alone, through having faith and trust alone in Jesus Christ, God's Son alone, is the way and the answer to our sin, our brokenness, and the pain in this world. And so this morning, we are going to look at sola scriptura, Latin for according to scriptures alone. You see, the reasons that the solas are written in Latin was because back in the day, Latin was the holy language of the Lord and his church. Uh, It didn't matter if you spoke German or English, you were going to hear the Bible read in Latin, and the services were going to be in Latin. Because, well, that's the way the Catholic Church taught it, preached it, and read it during their their masses on Sunday mornings. And Latin was the holy language of the Lord. But here's the problem. What if you didn't speak Latin? And what if you couldn't read? That gave all the power to those that were well-educated and well-astute, which tended to be the kings and the queens and the priests. Those that actually had the time to not have to work really hard at tilling the land or in some other kind of job, but they could just sit in the ivory tower and study. Well, rather than teaching the sheep how to feed themselves, this makes very, very dependent, dependent sheep. And as a result, people relied upon the Catholic Church as their utmost spiritual authority in their lives to show them what God required of them. And in turn, those pe- the people gave in the Middle Ages the church their absolute trust in their life. The church began to say, hey, you know what? You can't read the Bible, so don't worry about it. We're going to read it for you. And in fact, even if you could read the Bible, you really can't understand it. So here's what we're going to do. Don't read it. Don't even think about it. We're going to explain to you everything that it means. So if you would just trust us and do everything we said and don't question what we do... You and God are going to be straight. You and God are going to be good. Well, if you just follow our advice and our traditions 
and our way of doing things, God will look on you pleased. But having that much sway and that much power and that much influence, we're humans. And unfortunately, that has led to a history of some very heinous and heretical practices in the church that the church demanded happen in a life of a person in order for them to be worthy enough for God to have mercy on and save their souls. For example, in our series, Pastor Kerry last week was talking about relics, and he was talking about different things, indulgences. Indulgences were something like this. Hey, um, maybe your aunt or uncle or someone in your family died, and they're stuck in purgatory. Purgatory meaning when you died, you weren't exactly, you didn't do enough good things, so you're going to need to stay in this holy timeout. And after you've put in your time, eventually you'll be able to be sprung from that to go into heaven. And so if you pay the church, we'll speed that process up. Because I'm a spiritual authority and this is what, this is what, this is the way it is. Then there was also these relics where you would save three years wages to, to go travel to Israel or travel to Rome to just behold the splinter of the cross. And because you did that, that shows, you know what? That shows God you're serious and it's worth it. Well, unfortunately, that is all about me trying to get to God. And it's abusive because it robs people of three years' wages and leaves them no better before God than when they started. You see, it didn't matter what these practices were. They were found nowhere in Scripture. None of these traditions were found in what God had said. And this this <laughs> made a very angry, heartbroken, and determined little monk by the name of Martin Luther really angry. Because this church that he had dedicated his life to, this these men of God that he had he had grown up his whole life under, what they were doing and what God's word said didn't match up. And he was so frustrated and he's exclaiming, "Where is any of this found in what the scripture says?" The ways to God that the church demanded didn't help people. They were created by human priests who left people feeling deceived and scared to death and, and, and wondering, are God and I okay? Well, I guess I better save enough, but what if I don't save up enough to do the pilgrimage or to touch the relic? What, what, am I, what, what happens? So Luther says, the more of the scriptures that he read for himself, the more he realized how scriptures alone were to be the final say, not the church. And as Luther's confidence grew and grew in what God said in the scriptures, his confidence in what the church was saying on a Sunday morning. Next slide, please. And a Sunday morning started to go down. He started to lose trust in what they were preaching in their masses on a Sunday morning. And as a result, he started to grow in confidence. And that confidence gave way to conviction that he couldn't be quiet about this anymore. Here's the thing, the Protestant Reformation wasn't like this lay mis thing where we're all gonna like revolution, you know, into taking over the church. No, he came to his spiritual elders and was like, hey, this doesn't, what are we, what's going on? But because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, they couldn't take the fact that Luther was calling into question their power, their control, and their income. And so they started putting him on trial. And when they asked him to recant and take back everything that he had said, Luther says this. He declared with confidence, unless I am convicted of error by the scriptures, 
and my conscience is taken captive by God's word, I cannot and will not recant of anything. On this I take my stand and I can do no other. God help me. And so this morning, we are going to look at God's word and see what Paul says about what part the scriptures are to play in our life as followers of Jesus. But before we do that, would you pray with me? Let's ask God, before we jump into God's word, let's ask his spirit to unite our heart to his as we listen for his leading in our lives this morning. Abba Father, thank you for being the good, good father. Thank you, Lord, before we even got to church this morning. Lord, before we even got out of bed, you knew where we were at. You knew what we were struggling with. Nothing surprised you. And God, your forward posture is unconditional welcome. You are always ready to be with us. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray by the power of your spirit through your word that you would gather us to be with you this morning. Because you live in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Bible book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and our ushers will help you uh, give you a Bible to use this morning uh, during the message. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's um, kind of near the end of your Bible. I don't know if this is helpful. It's right after 1 Timothy. So um, <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3. Well, just to set the scene here, Paul is writing to Timothy in anticipation of his condemnation and execution in Rome. Scholars believe that 2 Timothy is the last book that Paul ever wrote in his lifetime. You see, we've been following Paul through the book of Acts just recently in our past one series, and Paul's been going out sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and he's getting a lot of people ticked off that he's doing that. If Jesus had the Jewish and the religious leaders mad in his day, imagine what we as Christians are going to be sharing that same message. So Paul, scholars believe, is in his second imprisonment in Rome. Paul has been, he has appealed to Caesar beforehand, and that's saved his life in the moment, but then he gets thrown in jail, he gets released. But now, the Jews keep coming back to the Roman authorities, just like they did with Jesus, to Pilate, saying, this guy is a menace to society, This guy is threatening your rule and your reign, O Rome. And the Jewish leaders knew exactly what to share with Rome to make them um, end Paul's life. You see, the Romans themselves were obsessed with Pax Romana. They were obsessed with the peace of Rome, and they would punish any danger to that peace. They would do whatever it takes to put down any person. And history is full of the unfortunate ways that Rome went through to control its subjects. Crucifying people, lighting people on fire, throwing them in the den of lions, all different ways. So you have this annoying gnat of Paul that keeps coming in the ear of Rome from the Jewish leaders who are also annoying. It's like, all right, that's it. Put him in prison, we'll lock him away. And so this 2 Timothy letter, he's writing to his mentee, the one that he had in youth group, the one that he watched and he mentored and he grew up with. and helped shape into the man of God that he is today. He writes Timothy at the end of his life to alert him of the circumstances surrounding what's going on. Hey, Tim, hope you're doing well. I'm here, locked up, probably going to die soon. FYI, I just wanted you to keep that in consideration. But I also want to warn you 
Timothy, as you become a pastor, here's kind of what's going to happen to the church. And here's how doctrine is going to try to get skewed. And in this final charge and farewell to Timothy, Paul reflects on the race that he's been running since he's been on the Damascus Road. He looks at his life, and it's interesting what he chooses to point out. It's interesting what he chooses to highlight at the end of his life and what the role of Scripture played in that life and the life of the church. So if you would, 2 Timothy chapter 3, let's start reading together. I'll read it, but read with me. Um, and <laughs> chapter 10. You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my life, my aim in life, my faith, my patience and love and steadfastness. Timothy, you're aware of my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra in the book of Acts which persecutions I endured, and yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue on what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood You've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, is practical for teaching and reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, the person of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That's a powerful statement to have read when, you, when I could say anything I wanted to, maybe on my deathbed, this is what Paul is choosing to share with Timothy. First, we notice in verses 10 and 11 that Paul implores Timothy to consider his life of integrity and faith as he has walked with God. Paul says, Timothy, you know my life. It wasn't hidden from you. I wasn't doing my own Christian thing in the corner by myself in secret and hiding, manipulating people to get saved and taking their money from them. No, I've lived my life out loud in front of you. So consider that. Consider the man that I am and the message that I bring. He invites Timothy to not only examine his life, but to hold his life up to Scripture. Does my talk match the walk? Does, does what I'm doing reflect in the Scriptures? But he also tells Timothy, Timothy, follow me. Follow my example. Follow my teaching. Then he drops a truth bomb in verse 12, stating that in order to live a godly life, a life with Jesus, we have to expect to be persecuted. Persecuted for what you believe and how you live. Let that sink in. I know that for me growing up, I thought if I, if I read a proverb a day because there was 31 to keep the devil away, then I was going to be pretty good. I thought if I read a proverb a day, then, okay, I'll step where I'm not supposed to step, and I will, you know, make sure that I follow God and make sure everything's fine. But the more I grew up, the more I realized I really can't control this thing called life. It's too crazy, and I can't get my arms around it. And so I had to learn over time, well, persecution and trial and all of these things are a part of the life. And I can either have a hope and a foundation, or I can be by myself figuring it out on my own, and we all know what that's like. But 
The Christian life and life period can be a hard one at times that takes our breath away and leaves us feeling confused and beat up and even bruised. But we can take heart. We can take heart because God doesn't save us, you know, and then fling us out and leave us on our own to wander around wondering and vulnerable and up to ourselves to figure these things out. No, he's engaged with us. He's given us fellow brothers and sisters in the faith to show us, hey, here's what it's like to walk with God through cancer. Here's what it's like to walk with God through divorce. Here's what it's like to walk with God in these unwanted moments in your life. So I know what you're going through is hard right now. Lean on me because I've leaned on Jesus. We need seasoned saints in our life to give us perspective in the moments of suffering. And so Paul is reminding Timothy that we need this family of faith to show us how to walk with God. And Paul knows, though, that Timothy, as important as my example is to you, as important as my, as faithful as my example has been, and as much as I've been in your life the whole time, I'm not going to be around forever. Therefore, when I'm gone, don't preach Paul. Don't come back to my words. Come back to the God-breathed sacred writings of Scripture. Come back to those. In verse, in verse 15 it says, And how from childhood you've been acquainted with these sacred writings, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is always pointing, pushing Timothy back to the sacred writings as the home base, the foundation, the rock in which Timothy is to live the rest of his life on, to do ministry on, to find his identity in. The scriptures are to be the home base. And then in verse 16, Paul tells Timothy that not only do the scriptures make you wise for salvation, here's what that means real quick, wise for salvation, Timothy, you've been reading the Old Testament so long, you've grown up in the sacred writings, that when I came along and presented the gospel of Jesus Christ and showed you how Jesus was the one foretold about, the Holy Spirit was able to say, that's right, in you. You were gifted with eyes to see that Jesus was the Messiah. It made you wise for salvation. But it didn't just stop there. It's not just, I'm going to heaven, I'm sitting back, things are good. No, Eternal life started now. And so, Timothy, as much as the Bible is God-breathed to help you connect to Jesus for salvation, it's also there to help you be wise for how to live this life. Paul has drawn his confidence to live the way he has from the Scriptures that are God-breathed. Paul knows his faith is not a hollow philosophy that deceives people and tricks people into believing like him and then is found out to be a fraud. No, he knows it is the truth that comes from the creator God, who is the ultimate authority and the ultimate author of his life. And because of that divine authority, Paul then instructs Timothy to measure his belief and his conduct against the whole of what Scripture says. Because ultimately, it is what God says, and he is the ultimate authority in Paul's life. So all Scripture is is breathed out by God and profitable for um, teaching and reproof. Those are matters of belief and for correction and for training in righteousness, belief and conduct. God is very much concerned with what we believe and how we're living. It's not just waiting to get to heaven. It's how we're living now. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Paul instructs him that scripture scripture is useful for these things. And God gives us his word to show us the best way through this life 
is with him. And this life includes loving like God does. Paul ends the chapter by pointing Timothy in verse 17 back to the idea that God has created Christians for good works. Not to save themselves by good works, but God in his plan has saved us for something. He purchased us with the blood of his son for a purpose. There is a reason we are included in the family of God. He's given us scriptures to instruct us how we may know what he expects of us and how it can be, we can be prepared to do what God does. God saves our life for a purpose and that purpose isn't just, man, it is great to be forgiven. I'm just going to hang out here by myself. I'm going to enjoy the blessings, the benefits of being guilt-free, shame-free. No way. Because it's not about me. It's about what God did for me and offered to me and how much I needed to hear the life-giving, hopeful message of Jesus Christ. And we too are encouraged and actually commanded to go into this broken world and share with them the hope that we have. Scripture is the one that tells us and trains us and prepares us for that purpose. But notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't get up here and say, Hey, Timothy, um, I'm going to be dead soon, so forget everything I've taught you. Forget everything that you've gone to church and I've taught you in youth group. Actually, what I want you to do is just you hang out with the Bible by yourself. You and the Bible are good. You don't need to go to church. You don't need to remember anything I said. Now, I bet Martin Luther in his day wanted to do away with a lot of practices, a lot of traditions. But he was trying to call his teachers back to God's word. Paul is saying, Timothy, hey, honestly, I'm your mentor. I'm a spiritual authority in your life. Continue to follow the ways that I've done. Continue in the traditions, the good Christian traditions I've given you, but always measure them back to what God's word says and let go of anything that falls short. If Paul's life doesn't match what the book says, don't believe it, Timothy. Don't do it. Don't imitate it. So he doesn't completely throw out tradition. He says, measure it according to God's word. And again, that's what Luther, that's what Luther was trying to do. Luther was saying that our belief and conduct should match the scripture. And the belief and the conduct of the Catholic church wasn't matching. It was deceiving people. It was hurting people. It was lying to people. And no matter how long a particular tradition has been around here at church or at our homes, if it's at odds with what God says in his word, we're to let that go. We're to let God's scripture be the final say at the end of the day. Because no church, no pope, no pastor needs to stand in front of the word of God, but rather we need to humbly submit to what the word of God says. And that is to be our directive in life. Because at the end of the day, scripture alone gets the final say. Paul stresses to Timothy and to us today that we have to orient our lives around what the scriptures say, not make scripture orient around our lives. I am to have God and his word at the center of my universe, and I'm the one who's supposed to orbit around it, not me at the center of my universe and ask God to uh, come on over and orbit around me. That's not what God desires for us. The Bible needs to inform how I live, not how I live, inform how I read the Bible. The Bible needs to inform how I live, not how I live, inform how I read the Bible. So what does this look like? What does it look like to actually let Scripture be our authority, the final say in our lives today? 
We'll try these on for size. In our marriages, am I going to my buddies to complain about my wife and have them remind me of what a gift I am to my wife and how lucky she is to have me in her life? Are they pumping me up like, yeah, man, you don't deserve that. You don't give that. Is that, is that what happens? Or am I surrounding men, surrounding myself with men and women who read God's scriptures and spend time in God's word and will push me back to my spouse to care for them and listen to them, to love her as Jesus loves me and supports me and gives himself repeatedly for me every single day. In my parenting, am I taking the lead as a parent and leading and guiding and teaching my children and helping them grow in their knowledge of God and helping shape their obedience to God? Or do I just throw my hands up and say, that's too hard. I just hope my children are become good moral kids because, you know, they go to school and they go to youth group once a week. In my dating life, am I dating someone who doesn't value Christ as much as I do? Am I letting God and his word inform my sexual behavior, or do I just do what feels good? Do I let social media or magazines and the movies teach me how to treat the opposite sex in a relationship? Are they mentoring me, or do I allow God's view of people and how he treats people shape how I view and treat others? What about my identity? How am I supposed to find God's word as my identity? Well, um, do I let the Kardashians and TMZ tell me what's most important for me to spend my time on? Or do I look to God and his wisdom for who I really am and what I am to be about? What about at work and at school? Am I doing whatever it takes, which includes cheating and lying and stealing to get ahead? Or am I choosing to walk in truth because I've been reading the truth because God is truth and he desires for me to reflect that truth in this world? What does it look like to have the Bible as the authority in the way that we cope with life's difficulties? What substances or what coping mechanisms do I use to push down the feelings that I don't want to feel as opposed to bringing the mess of who I am to God and saying, Lord, can you love me? Can you transform me? Because only a person can transform us. A substance can make us numb for a second, but it can't lead us back to God. What about with our money and our finances? Am I putting my trust in God's promises to establish me, to walk with me and never leave me? Or am I relying on that college or that networking relationship that I do anything it takes or the corner office to take away my fear of being poor and lost and without? Am I seeking to be known by the world and my boss and my friends and will do anything and be anyone to them? Or am I trusting God at his word that he will shape me into the man or woman that he wants for his glory and ultimately my good? You might be asking, Pastor John, but... What about those areas in life that the Bible doesn't talk about? What about those areas in life that I have to go to an outside authority? When I take Shelby, when Debbie and I take Shelby to the doctor, I'm going to say, Doctor, you are the authority. It would be dumb of me to be like, no, I've got the Bible, therefore you can't speak as an authority in my life. That's not what sola scriptura means. Because we're going to need to go to outside authorities to fix our car. Like, I don't know what's wrong with my camera. It's had the light on. I need to go to someone who's an authority and can figure that out. So whether 
we are studying uh, biology or even consulting a cookbook on how to cook, I'm going to trust the cookbook over my ability to make something taste good. You see, the Bible doesn't speak about absolutely every single thing in every single circumstances, but according to 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have enough in Scripture from what God said to live a life, to not just live a life, to live a flourishing life. So when we are studying what science has to tell us about gravity or electrons or the makeup of the universe, we can allow it to speak as an authority into our life. My cousin is an astrophysicist. I'm going to take his word on things more than my own creative research at night on Einstein or something like that. You know, he's, he's an authority in his field. However, though, if our learning from that authority takes us away from what God has revealed in Scripture, then that's where we as Luther, as Luther did say, I'm going to come back to what Scripture says. I'm going to believe in what Scripture says, and I'm going to put my confidence in there. Because at the end of the day, what are we looking for? What are we looking to as an authority to save us? Is it our finances, our reputation, an addiction, our health? When it comes to making decisions about my life, God, on Sundays, you can have all of my priorities. God, you can take the spiritual moments in my life group, and you can be in charge of that. But when it comes to my family, when it comes to my finances, when it comes to my future, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do except for me and me alone, because I know what's best. Our anxiety would tell us that. Our anxiety would say, yeah, yeah, you do it. Demand it now. The pain of this world would try to convince us. Or will we recognize what the Scripture tells us, that we can't do anything to save ourselves? We can't do anything to get into heaven. We can't do anything to make this life work on our behalf. Because if we're honest, all of us struggle with the same sins of the Garden of Eden and the Tower of Babel. We all struggle with fear, lack of trust, pride, guilt, shame, you name it. Because you know what? At the end of the day, you and I will always be frustrated that we are limited, created creatures. I want to be in control so bad. I want to be God so bad so I don't have to feel out of control. I don't have to feel these things, what it means to be a human, what it means to be a creature. But it's good to be a human. It's good to be created because it's not up to us then to save ourselves. It is only in the finished work of Jesus Christ that we can have confidence for this life in the life of the other, because we're not smart enough. We're not powerful enough. We're not God enough in our lives. We can't do anything to fix that problem. But God's invitation to humanity has always been an abundant life. It has always been a fruitful and meaningful existence that can only be found in a relationship with him. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross of our guilt, our shame, our worry, our frustration, our humanness. He put it on the cross so that we could be seated with the Father right next to him in heaven. What it means to be in Christ is not like, I'm going to will myself. No, guys, we are cemented to Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have all the favor, all the glory, all the blessings, all the inheritance. That is Christ Jesus because of his dad. We get that. Only by relying on that finished work of Jesus, according to what the scriptures say, can we taste the abundant life that Christ came to offer. 
Of course we're going to mess up. Of course, as Christians, we're going to have times where we freak out and we're messy and we're afraid and we're unsure. But we got to come back to what God thinks. we got to come back to God. We have to come back to his word because it's going to be the foundation for us to stand up on during those hard times. All of these solas that we've been covering, all the solas of Martin Luther, the only reason that they are still impacting us 500 years later is because they are built on the word of God. They aren't just philosophies thought up by man. If they were, that's just cotton candy. Cotton candy tastes great, but at the end of the day, you're still starving, and now you have cavities. (laughs) If we just follow our own best idea, we're going to be left starving, and we're going to continue to have cavities on our soul. The greatest example I could ever give you means nothing if it's contrary to the word of God. Paul himself tells us that these scriptures, Timothy, and tells us now in 2017 that these are to be the rock in which we live our life on. They are to be the training guide by which we train for this life on. Scripture connects us to the ultimate authority and reality of our situation and gives us the living hope that we have to live and move and find our being in God. The scriptures remind us that of God's perspective. I asked the students last week, how do you know if God is pleased with you? And depending on their experience with their parents, maybe they're holding up the same standards to God. How do I know? How do I know if God's pleased with me? Well, we come back to scripture. You know what scripture says? He's the good, good father who understands that we're human. He understands that we're kids. He understands that we step in stuff that we shouldn't. And he's always ready to welcome us back as his beloved children because he purchased us and he purposed us. He saved us and he gave us significance. That is our identity in Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ and in Christ alone. But that doesn't come because John said it or Pastor Mike or anyone. It comes because God said it himself. Our daddy, we can know that we are good with God because we are cemented to Christ Jesus. Scriptures remind us that though we may be shaken in this life, we don't have to be blown away because we're standing on the word of God. Would you pray with me?